Yes, notably, my wife played Eurydice That's in that play. That's right. Yep. Everybody and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai, and I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome. Yeah, welcome. I'm back, everyone. You all were in good hands last week with Jacob and Karen, but I, Jackson, this weird voice, are back this week. <laughs> I are back this week. I are back this week. <laughs> and what a week back. to be back! It is the yeah. final episode of season two. Jackson, we are men who have two full seasons of a podcast <laughs> of available online. What? What? Is that not a crazy feeling? It's pretty fun. Yeah, no, thank you all for hanging in there for two seasons. It's been so great getting to talk about these scripts with each other, but also with you all in the community at large. So thank you all for listening to the podcast. We're so excited, both that we are at the end of this second season, but that we will be coming at you again with a third season as well. We've already got it slated for early July that it'll be coming out, and uh, we're looking forward to that as well. That's right. We'll be gone for just a few weeks, but we will be back with you. Season three is coming, and like Jackson said, Really, the only reason that we do this is because we know that there are folks who are interested in the conversations that we're having and folks that love scripts that find this to be a valuable use of their time. We are blessed beyond measure that the listenership grows week to week. So the No Script community continues to expand, and that is in no small part thanks to you all. So we're excited to be coming back at you with season three in early July, as Jackson said. Between now and then, one of the things that would be awesome for you to do is to go on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, patreon.com slash no script podcast. We've heard that it's a little bit hard to find our Patreon just by searching for it on the Patreon website. So we try to say the website URL as often as possible. That's the best way to get to us. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. You'll find us there. You can become a patron of the podcast for as low as $1 a month. One dollar a month, you can support the work that we're doing here on No Script. Again, as I've said in other episodes, I know that many of you would just hand me twelve dollars if I just walked <laughs> over to you and was like, "Can I have twelve dollars?" You just hand it to me. So go on over to Patreon.com/slash No Script Podcast and hand me twelve dollars <laughs> via the internet. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just head on over there. And like you said, like Jacob said, it's only a dollar, and that dollar helps us out so much. There are some fees associated with hosting a podcast. There's obviously the cost of the scripts for whatever we can't find at our local library. So, yeah, heading over to Patreon, all of y'all would be awesome if you did that. Even though you're already awesome, you'd be even more awesome. So, we'll see you over there at patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to the script. Which, this week, we are doing a play that I am very excited to talk about uh, because this is a play that I, I've seen before, that I have a little bit of history with. It's by an awesome playwright. So we are getting into Eurydice by Sarah Rule this week. That is right. We are returning to our old friend Sarah Rule. Last season, we did her play The Clean House, a play that I'm really, really fond of. And this week, we are talking about Eurydice. 
uh, a script that I'm not as fond of as I am of Clean House. Uh, and it'll be, I think it'll be an interesting conversation because uh, while we don't often fall on very opposite sides of scripts, I'm not sure exactly what we're actually going to agree on in terms I know. of this script. I really have no idea going in. <laughs> where we're headed. Um, you want right, to give us right. a little bit of the context first, Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So context-wise, just for the history of this play, we like to contextualize a little bit. Uh, this play received its world premiere in Madison repertory, at, the, at the Madison Repertory Theater in Madison, Wisconsin in September of 2003. It then had a, sh- had a showing out in California with basically the cast that then brought it to Off-Broadway. Um, uh, so the, the California... Production happened in 2004, and then most of that team produced the play Off-Broadway at the Second Stage Theater in August of 2007. Um, It uh, had a number of uh, award nominations, including the 2008 Drama League Award and Distinguished Production of a Play. Uh, The Drama Desk Awards also nominated it. And uh, and, uh, then additionally, kind of my personal context with this play is uh, I got to see it at my alma mater at Northwestern College and uh, got to see a really great production of it there. So, uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, I'm excited Let, to get let's to. Let's not kinda... jump through this hoop here, Jackson. Who <laughs> played Eurydice in the yes. production that you saw at Northwestern College? Yes, notably, my wife played Eurydice That's in that play. That's right. Yep, yep. Lots of personal context. <laughs> so much context for this play. I think Jacob's trying to set me up for why I, why <laughs> I, I must like this play so that, much. <laughs> but it's notable. <laughs> Just want to see um, that real quick. <laughs> I've never seen this play. I, I've watched uh, the the product. One of the productions that you can find online it was a recorded production, and so I've watched that production. But that's my only encounter with it. So I I hope I will have the grace to seed ground to Jackson when possible <laughs> in terms of uh, what it would be like to see perform versus what it reads like. I think probably this play reads a little challengingly. Um, but before we get there, let's get to the story, the plot, what goes on. If you don't know, the play Eurydice is a story, it's a telling of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. If you've happened to neither see the play nor ever hear about the myth, um, it is the story of a young couple in love, Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, across all the iterations of the myth, Eurydice ends up in Hades for uh, lots of different reasons. Um, some of them she just outright dies. Lots of them she gets sort of tricked into going down into Hades uh, by Hades himself. Um, some of them she's sort of kidnapped a la Persephone. It just depends on what you're doing. In this particular version, she is first tricked by Hades and then then dies. Um, (laughs) And she ends up there. So they're they're young and in love. So Orpheus comes down to Hades after Eurydice to rescue her. The basic of the myth is that Hades tells Orpheus he needs to walk towards the exit to the gates of hell uh, and that Eurydice will be following behind him and that he cannot turn around to look at her until he's outside of hell. And that If he does turn around to look at her before then, she will sometimes turn into a pillar of salt, sometimes just disappear, sometimes just be trapped in Hades. That's the core story of the myth. This telling of the myth uh, 
is a little bit different. It gives Eurydice a little bit more agency in the walking out of hell part. Um, kind of the crucial moment is her decision rather than Orpheus' decision. It also lends a lot of weight to a character that is not really in the original myth, which is Eurydice's father. When she comes to hell, much of, especially the middle part of the play, is about her and her father, who's been dead for a while, who is now getting to rebuild a relationship with her inside hell. So that's the plot. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good, pretty good kind of helicopter view of the plot. It is a kind of classic retelling of a story that we have often heard before. So, and, so. and, and I want to start there, Jackson, this idea that we've often heard the story before. Before we hop into the play, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. What is the deal with this myth? <laughs> Everybody's doing it. We've already talked about this myth. Yeah, we yep. did a play last season that involved this myth. Of course, now Eurydice by Sarah Rule is very popular, what we're talking about today. But there's also now the new Broadway phenomena, Town, which yeah. is this myth. What mm-hmm. is the deal? Why are people so into this story? <laughs> it's a good question. It's something that has kind of survived from antiquity and carries on down. Um, I think there are powerful themes in this in this uh, this story that that end up unifying us. There is a strong theme of love as some sort of power that can conquer a lot of things in the end. And, uh, and I mean, Orpheus makes his way down to hell as a living being, um, in, in the myth or, or some version but of that. ultimately <laughs> fails, right? I mean, ultimately fails. The, yeah. the story is not especially a story of love conquering all. It's really, right. it's like a tragedy. It is. It's a tragic ending. Even in Sarah yeah. Rule's bizarre telling of the ending of the story, it's a tragedy. It's a it's a painful loss. She is lost mm-hmm. forever to Hades. Orpheus must go on without her. Yep. It's a. It also is kind of like a warning play. Like this is what happens when you meddle with with death. <laughs> this is what happens when you try to hang on to something post death, and you try so hard, and eventually you're going to get something even worse in the end, which is you came this close to having it back and and it's even worse than it was before. You've already grieved and now you're grieving again. Yeah, in, in rules play, they call it the second death. You're yeah. going to die a second death. Mm-hmm. The, there's there's these great characters of the stones in the play that I'm sure we'll get to eventually. Um, but there's, a, yeah, the line around that is like, you've already grieved for your father once. To grieve for him twice is is awful. To grieve for him three times is just disgraceful or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah. So th- I think those are that those are some of the resonant themes anyway that 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 make this myth uh, continue on into our modern vernacular. Yeah, and and this telling of the myth continues in a lot of those themes, this sense of love being at least triumphant enough to come into death and attempt a rescue, but ultimately falling apart. Um, this idea that once things are dead, they ought to stay dead, that the trying to hang on and create something new amidst something that's gone is not a fruitful endeavor that that exists certainly but the this play takes a a definite shift from other tellings of Orpheus and Eurydice even the other two versions i've mentioned Hades Town and the version that's told in Metamorphosis by Mary Zimmerman even both of those fall towards the classic more romantic 
view of the story where the core relationship or the core characters are Orpheus and Eurydice and will they or won't they survive the fact that uh, Eurydice has been whatever kidnapped or killed this play it's not as much about that is it I mean that's there yeah I, I don't think it's yeah I don't think it's much about it at all really it's almost like she is using Sarah Rule is using the story of Eurydice as a lens through which to view the story that she wants to tell which is something else it's like a other through line and I think you've kind of already mentioned the character around which that pivots yeah right yeah of course it's Eurydice's father I, I love the way you said that is that Sarah Rule kind of piggybacked on this myth that already exists just really as as a vehicle, a straight up train <laughs> engine within which she can tell a totally different story. <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> and that really works in some ways. It, it ends up running up against itself a little bit in other ways, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the ways that it really works is that it provides an easy... Um, like an an easy language where within the audience can understand how someone is dead and still engaged in life moving forward because this yeah. world of greek mythology the the underworld hades is not a place in which you go and suffer for the rest of your life like traditional hell, right? Or it's not an afterlife right. like heaven. We kind of, as a Western people, understand what the underworld is in Greek mythology, that it's a place where there is life continual and mm-hmm. that life, at least in the Greek stories we know, goes on and can have change moving forward. Right, and is somehow still connected to the ongoing story of the world and the people who are alive still. You can't see my fingers. I'm doing the quotation thing. Um, the people who are alive can still, you know, you can imagine a way that they could find their way to the underworld um, without necessarily dying. So I agree that within by using an, an accepted mythic structure, some of the magic and some of the unexplained things in this play... Uh, wind up being given some grace via that. Or the the opportunity is there for the audience to say, sure, they sent letters from the underworld to the surface and and back the other way. That that can happen, sure. Yeah, and I think you made a good point that that a lot of why Rule potentially would have leaned into an existing myth to tell this new story is that there's some language already built in or some context already built in for how the real life and the underworld can intermix. Whereas in, you know, if she had just written a new story whole cloth, there would have had to be some catching up or some uh, new imagining of what the what the relationship is between people who are dead and people who are alive. Whereas the Greek stories have people who are dead and who are alive talking to each other and moving between the worlds <laughs> all the time. So I think yeah. you walk in to see the story of Orpheus and Eurydice and you're willing to accept that as it stands. Sure, he's dead. He's sending a letter to his daughter who's alive. Sure, she's dead. She's getting rescued by this person who's alive. Whatever. 
Yep. <laughs> That's fine. It's fine. <laughs> the the kind of interesting uh, physical element that is played with in that, though, is this this water. The river sticks. Uh, the river sticks. I'm going to say that uh, clearly. Um, is uh, is used in this play in kind of a a weird um, avant garde's the wrong word, but a, a kind of new way of using the water of the river sticks. Right, this play. and and actually, right away you can tell what the change is because the the river is not called the river sticks in this play it is yeah. called the river of forgetfulness yeah and the river of forgetfulness is the river sticks as you might know from greek mythology it's the river that leads you to um the underworld although the river in the play doesn't really lead the people to the underworld really at all <laughs> right uh, the elevator does um, where the water is there's there is water in the elevator <laughs> ultimately though the point is that uh, there's this phrase dipped in the river and the idea is that when you're dead they the grand they i don't know that we ever really know who they is yeah. they dip you in the river and that r- basically erases your memories not only your memories of what it was like when you were alive and the people you knew and especially the names that comes up a lot names but also uh skills like reading and writing uh and also understandings of relationships like even things like what a father is what love is and really correct me if i'm wrong about this jackson because it gets a little bit fuzzy it also removes your ability to speak in the language of people who are alive yeah. Right, you become only able to at that point speak the language of the dead or the language of stones, and whether those are the same or different, I'm not really sure. Yeah, yeah, it it, it kind of strips you of humanity in some ways. It, it it it's kind of presented as as a mercy, right? Like somehow you're still alive, right? So that's <laughs> that's something. Well, um, you're still uh, conscious. You're con. That's that's a good that way to you're put alive. it. Yeah, your conscience is still around. And so rather than uh, allowing your conscience to exist with all your memory of the people that you loved and cared about before, when you get to Hades in this retelling, you are kind of washed over with water and you forget all about that. You can spend eternity blissfully unaware. Yeah, in something like a society, the father character who's dead from the beginning of the show says that, you know, the world of the underworld is sociable. People have jobs. People go out and do things. They lead something of a life or a non-life, I guess, however you'd say that. So that's one of the major set elements. We've talked a little bit about the elevator. That's how people enter the underworld via death. When they die, they come down through this elevator. It's a raining elevator. It rains on the inside. It -hmm. delivers, as I think, only two people over the course of the play. Only Eurydice when she originally dies, and then Orpheus at the very end of the show. Spoilers! Hey! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's the route by which people who are dead make it to the world of the underworld. Um there is another route, which Orpheus winds up finding, which is to make it to the doors of the underworld, which I think is the only other way in. And how he gets there, the world will never know. <laughs> he he describes blowing through a straw or something. Yeah. You know what? If, the, if she had gone with the cord thing, I would have been on board. I'm all for it. Like, he, f- he plays the right musical chord, and that leads him, like, through a water droplet down through the soil to the <laughs> yep, gates yep. of hell. I am on board. But this thing with the straw, I don't know about that. <laughs> 
That is an odd moment. This is maybe a good point. We're going to start bringing up more and more of these things to kind of note that a lot of this play is poetry. Um, very, very visual, uh, fun ways of of making you visualize things differently. Yeah, and um, I think the caveat I would say is that it's visual poetry. Yes. I think most of this play, and why it's a little bit of a slog to read, is that most of this play is action. Um, mm-hmm. it, there's just not a lot of words. Occasionally yeah. a character has a monologue, but other than that, the short lines, lots of space between lines, typically words that are sometimes nonsensical. Um, yeah. Most, uh, most or a lot of the play is somewhere between action and image. I really like that you bring that up because I think that's where this play can get dangerous is if you treat it like a play that is lines. Um, I I, th- I don't th- I think you should spend as much time working on the movement in this play as you do the words of this play because it's oh, God, all you gotta inter- spend way more time right it can't be even <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got but, but like working on the intention of it too because it can't be a stand and deliver play it will be a boring play if it's a stand and deliver play um bec- because it, there's just not enough there there's not enough meat but there's so much uh a just called on action right like the the father builds a house for Eurydice out of string and the play itself says it takes a long time to build a house out of string <laughs> so yeah in you... fact i'm just going to go ahead and read you this whole stage direction spot so this is in the sec i think it's the second movement Eurydice has come down to the underworld this is all of scene 3 the whole of scene 3 the father creates a room out of string for Eurydice he makes four walls and a door out of string time passes It takes time to build a room out of string. Eurydice observes the underworld. There isn't much to observe. She plays hopscotch without chalk. Every so often, the father looks at her, happy to see her, while he makes her a room out of string. She looks back at him, polite. Mm -hmm. End of scene three. That's a whole scene with no dialogue that should be long. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is meant to take up time. Um... And and so so there's so there's that there's the called upon you need to move tell you need to be a visual physical storyteller but if you don't carry that through into the rest of the scenes because there's a good deal of talking and some of it's kind of weird talking like it's it's the father teaching her what different Greek words mean um, and so if you don't include the the movement carrying through the whole play um, it can it can produce kind of a weird. Um, it, it makes that moment of the house weird, right? Like, why are we sitting here watching a bunch of movement? I thought I was watching a straight play. That could be the reaction if you don't commit to movement and physical acting throughout the play. Right, and of course, the design elements are going to be so crucial. Um, the way, especially that things like sound and light are used to help guide the audience through those moments that we just can't really access in terms of just the dramatic literature, I think are so crucial to the experience of the play. Um, in saying all of that, the, the images become so important that there are moments where to me, they sort of overwhelm the storytelling in, in ways that make it just a little bit hard to access. Here's an example. Throughout the play, we meet Hades, the actual character Hades, something like four times. And he has three different appearances. But there's no 
even really, it doesn't even seem like there's any intention to comment on why Hades changes. And the first, in the first time you meet him in the real life, he's called the nasty, interesting man in a trench coat. And he's sort of trying to seduce her. And then they meet him in the middle of the play as the Lord of the Underworld. And he's supposed to be like a to- like an overgrown toddler on a trike with like clothes that don't fit him. And then at the very end, he's like a giant. And that all of that is very interesting imagery, but there's no even, there's no access point for the audience to make anything of that. I mean, if I really tried, I could make something of that, but I don't know what Sarah Rule's trying to make me access in terms of how that image fits with the rest of the imagery of the play. Yeah, that that's a good point. I think the, the, the character of Hades can be a, a pretty confusing character both to the audience but also to the actor playing Hades in this play um, it's it is a it is a weird one I mean you, he shows up so first of all you have the, the the nasty interesting man who has two beats in the in the first uh, third let's say for really first quarter of the play yeah and the, um, the play's not broken up into acts it's broken up into movements which yeah. leans into that sort of poetry image based uh, reality of the play mm-hmm and then the same actor does play the the god of the underworld, but he comes on in a very different outfit. You're almost supposed to disassociate just a little bit. Um, he's he's a kid. He's on a tricycle. He's he's kind of riding through, being very uh, uh, uppity. I guess maybe is the way I'm trying to say it. He's he's in people's faces and stuff. Yeah, and like um, there's supposed to be heavy metal music playing. Clearly, yeah. supposed to be a different persona of the same person. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then he then he makes a pronounced move later on in the play. The stage directions call for him to be very similarly voiced to the nasty, interesting man. So there is a turn eventually where you're like, oh, oh, right, this is the guy who basically killed her beforehand and sent her here. So, so yeah, there's that. That is a very complicated morass in which we we wind up dealing with this character throughout, especially if it's just a story of the myth. Especially if you let yourself kind of, kind of, which is easy to do in this play, uh, just experience this play as a retelling of the Eurydice and Orpheus myth. Uh, I, which I think, I think we both agree it's not. Yes. <laughs> or at exactly. least it's not that simple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a, there's an interesting uh, line in here about the wedding that I think winds up dictating quite a bit of what this play is actually about. Oh my gosh. And the the wedding imagery is beautiful. Yeah. That is the the play is at its strongest when it leans into the relationship of Eurydice and her father and the relationship of being dead and absent through life's important moments. When it leans into that, it is so poignant. But I sometimes mm-hmm. feel like when it leans into just sort of reinterpreting interesting Greek myths stuff yeah, the into a different way, it's yeah. like, well, that's just not as interesting. Mm-hmm. I just am not sure the character of Hades and the changes he goes through is interesting enough to warrant making the audience go, why is he 10 feet tall now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are other yeah. things like that that I, I'm sure we'll discuss. But let's talk about the, the wedding imagery. Yeah, the, the wedding imagery is uh, she – uh, after the wedding, we get a, a monologue from Eurydice, and she's kind of talking about weddings in general and commenting on them. And she says, uh, kind of uh, a little bit mournfully, that weddings are really for, uh, yeah. She she says weddings are really for fathers and daughters. And, and actually, uh, ex- and that comes after the letter delivered by her father. And so, scene one is Orpheus and Eurydice in love, 
and they get engaged. Scene two is the father delivering, sort of reading aloud a letter that he has written to Eurydice. Eventually, he delivers it as well via the strange mail delivery system. Right, And right. Um, the letter is basically, if I were at your wedding and able to give a speech, here's all the advice I would give you. By the way, I'm dead. It's not so bad down here. I love you. I wish I was there. He sends the letter. And then he's supposed to sort of pretend as if he were able to walk her down the aisle and be in that happy moment, sort of act out the pretend game as if this f- adult man is pl- is actually miming, pay- playing pretend, like he yeah. could be there. And then we get this note from Eurydice about weddings being from fathers and daughters, like you say. Mm-hmm. Notably before she has received the note from her father. Um, she is still kind of, she, she is... So it's it's kind of in that way it's kind of mournful, right? She hasn't heard from her father, and she even kind of says at one point that oh, it's great he finally sent me a letter. So it's that still like weird assumption that this is possible that the other side can reach out to you, um, but at this point she hasn't. Um, so yeah, and 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 that that line of uh, wedding is for I'll, I'll read read the one line here. Um, a wedding is for daughters and fathers. The mothers all dress up trying to look like young women, but a wedding is for a father and a daughter. They stop being married to each other on that day. Um, so, so, so that is, for me, that really defines a lot of what this play is about. It's, it's about this, this strange relationship, not strange, this, this unique relationship between father and daughter within the context of the relationships, that, the other relationships that she has. We have Orpheus, who is the the one that she is in love with and she is trying to marry uh, though she dies and kind of misses out on a good chunk of that we have the random stranger who repre- who could represent you know random people who come up to you and try to accost you and and kind of try to bring you to their house and 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 and, and hit on you um then you have the, the kind of the, the young boy, the different stories that come from the kind of the boyish approaches to her and, and how he tries to flirt really wantonly uh, with her. And then you have the progression to this this other option, which I don't know what the giant is, honestly. I was trying to connect the giant <laughs> 80s, but there's <laughs> well, probably there's some way Well, all this imagery and, and discussion about how I've grown up now. Now I've grown yeah. into a man, but he's like... He's grown disproportionate. It, it doesn't happen the right way, so it's, it's sort of skewed and not not you know. There, there's some sort of that in there that Hades can't sort of make himself grow and be a man in the normal ways. Like right. I said, if I try hard, I can come up with something, <laughs> but it's just not immediately accessible. Yeah. Returning to the wedding stuff, the 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 bookends of this. Um, father and daughter relationship, especially as it relates to weddings, are obviously we've just discussed the beginning of the play, his letter about if I could be there, his miming of walking her down the aisle, and then her discussions, as you say, at the wedding. Then, at the very end of the play, when Orpheus, well, it's actually not quite the end, maybe four-fifths of the way through, uh, when Orpheus actually shows up in hell, uh, she's supposed to go with him, walk behind him, and walk out of hell with him. In order to get her to Orpheus, he and and she walk together and the stage directions yeah. call for it to mm. sort of be the wedding march. Um, yeah. And so he actually gets to do that moment where he brings her to her husband as a father. And in that way, that really, for me, becomes the core journey of the play. Not just can he give her away at the wedding. That's really an image which Rule uses to uh, carry us through the journey of a relationship reborn. Mm-hmm. 
And then, yeah, abs- yeah. And then you get the next beat too, which is where she's kind of on her own for a minute. <laughs> like it's after, after uh, she's uh, kind of been uh, walked to the way out of hell by her father and she's following Orpheus. And then she has to process all of this. Uh, as she is following Orpheus and what she decides to do. You you briefly mentioned this earlier about how in this play, Eurydice has quite a bit of agency um, in, in her way out of hell versus some other versions, which is uh, most of the other versions, which she doesn't. Um, but this one, there's, there's, there's this interesting these interesting beats where she's talking to the stones. We got to talk about the stones eventually, but she's, she's going through, I don't recognize Orpheus. Who is this person in front of me? And then they remind her, that's your husband. You can do this. And it's, it's this complicated uh, bunch of emotions that are all kind of encapsulated in that walking towards her husband again. So that imagery again repeats towards the end of the play. Right. And, and all of that is built into what, what amounts to, I think, for me, a new life for Eurydice. She lives her life in real life or as an alive person, and her father has died some time ago. We don't know how long ago, but some time ago. Enough that she doesn't really... Again, I, I don't know. I couldn't make. Yeah. You couldn't even really make a guess. I, I, I was about right. to try, but it's I, not in the parameters of the no play. No point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So then she dies via the falling down the stairs scene. She gets sort of tricked to come to this the Hades apartment, and then she falls down the stairs and dies. When she arrives in hell, she arrives as someone who needs to be retaught everything. So she has a father who's there to basically walk her through what a parent does. And a parent, she, he teaches her how to read and write again. He teaches her how to interact with the world again. He, all of this stuff that they, you know, potentially missed out on and definitely she doesn't remember anymore to the point where then she's sort of a capable human being again with at least most of her memories back. She's able to tell stories from her life again now. And when that happens, it comes time for him as the parent to give her away. To a husband, right? So they live out this mini journey of a life, a lifelong relationship between a father and daughter, which they are at the beginning of the play mourning. The father mourning that he can't be there for their wedding, her mourning that he's not there with her. Then due to this, what seems like tragic death, right. she, they're able to live a new life together in the underworld. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and have those experience that the experiences that they were denied. Now it doesn't turn out well again. <laughs> Like, it doesn't necessarily end happily, but still those experiences were important and were, were, were a part of them. What do you make, then, of the kind of wiping of them at the end? Well, like, uh, the first beat of it I absolutely love. When the father – so after Eurydice has gone off, I can't remember if this is before or after we know what's going to happen to her. Um, she – that we see the father with sitting with the stones and she's gone now. We know that his life was so absent without her before and he had her for a short time and now he's absent without her again and he's just bemoaning. He's in grief. He knows that now he has these memories and they're going to cause him pain. So somewhat of his own accord, somewhat because the stones talk him in to it. He goes to the river sticks through a bizarre monologue about all these street directions to get to yeah. the river of forgetfulness. I, I really wanted to track that down to see about. like 
exactly where that leads you. Like Google map it and some, I, someone do that. And again, us. that's one of those moments where I just am not sure the image really matches up with the moment in any obvious way. But yeah. if he gets to the river of forgetfulness and gets in the river and wipes his memories clean. So because he's so heartbroken and so grief ridden over losing Eurydice again that he wipes himself clean. I love that. I mean, just as a commentary on parents giving away their children and the grief and emptiness they experience as they leave the house and go out into the world in this sense of, you know, was, is the pain, is the grief, is the loss I'm experiencing? Is there some way I could get rid of it? And watching this man have the choice to be able to do that. Then Eurydice comes to him and what happens between her and the Lord of the Underworld? Well, yeah, yeah. So that that next beat begins to its own version of heartbreak. That she she returns from following Orpheus, and we'll talk about that beat in a minute. But she returns from following Orpheus, and it not working out. She is still stuck in the underworld, and uh, she comes back. And this is when Hades comes, and he's like, "I'm a man now, and we're going to. I've decided that we are going to." be married or be together or whatever. Um, And and, really uh, that's, you know, if he has a journey through the play, that is the journey, is to get Eurydice. In the first scene, he meets her for the first time, falls into lust or love with her or whatever, and through the rest of the play, tries to win her. Yep. Mm -hmm. So now he's a man, again, sort of a disfigured, odd man, couldn't quite do it right. Now he's a man and he says, like you say, Yep. We're, we're going to, we're going to go do this and we're going to do it now. And, uh, she says, can I just have a minute to prepare? And he leaves and he, he lets her do that. Um, so then she goes to her father, uh, and is trying to get her father to remember her. And it's, it's, he's, he's gone. Basically he is, uh, there is something to do with, uh, again, this is kind of fishing for details and something that isn't too concerned about details, but there's something to do with how long you are in the water and how much you forget. Like there's multiple times where people are like, Oh, we got to get them back to the river again and get them under for longer. Cause they're remembering stuff. And her father like bathes in it. Uh, he's, he is fully taking away his memory. So there's nothing she can do to bring it back. And she realizes this and, um, she decides to, to also kind of, strip away the thing that Hades is interested in in her, which is that she has these memories, that she's different down here. So she decides to kind of take away her memory. That, and, that, and That's a really interesting point, that Hades' attraction to her is not based on her physical beauty, right? I mean, that's one of the ways in which the play makes some commentary, that mm-hmm. Orpheus is... And I'm not, I'm not sure what to make of this commentary all the way through. <laughs> Orpheus, so we'll see where it goes. <laughs> her husband, her lover, the person with whom the play seems to indicate she's destined to be with, or at least the myth does. In this telling, Orpheus is only interested in her for her looks or her body. And that's yeah. kind of discussed multiple times. This sense that he's not really interested in listening to her talk about her ideas or books or thoughts. Uh, she apparently is a really interesting person that's said over and over again. She likes to think about things, likes to read, likes to discuss ideas. And he's not interested in any of that. And then right. in, later in the play, in a monologue, she basically says, all he's interested in is my body because it's simple and he can understand it. A- and so that's that's kind of problematic, especially yeah. when the Lord of the Underworld is interested <laughs> yeah. in her for like, quote unquote, the right thing, that she's sure, an interesting yeah. person, who she is, wants to talk to her. I don't know what to do with that. 
Yeah, he's in, uh, there is there is like a gross aspect to him as well. He's interested, I think, in possessing her for that. Um, but but not. I, I think you're right in not giving Orpheus much grace. He's kind of a cad in this this play. Oh man, he is a <laughs> doofus in this yeah. play. He's a doofus, and he just he he. He assigns a lot of blame to Eurydice for the moment of him turning around, and there's, there's. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I do agree that he assigns blame. I do agree also that it's her fault. I don't know about that. I think it has to be her fault. Look, that is. I think for me, that decision to make Eurydice the reason why Orpheus turns around is one of the most important changes of this story from the original mythic retelling is that it it says that Eurydice had the chance to decide whether she was going to walk out of hell with Orpheus or not. Uh, Okay, I see, yeah. Right? She takes the action. So the blame falls on her. If she hadn't yelled at him, said, hey, turn around, hey, (laughs) if she hadn't done that, she would have been able to walk out of hell. But she did do that. It becomes her choice what Mm -hmm. happens at the end of the play rather than some sort of feat of will on the part of Orpheus. Sure, yeah, and a breakdown of will was what turned him. I I, I see where you're going with that, and I I do like that retelling. It does give more agency. Um, But I don't, yeah, maybe that's not the perfect example of it, but there are other moments where he kind of, uh, he he just like jerkily focuses on his music all the time when they're like, she's trying to have a conversation with him. We almost never hear his music. Right. Yeah. At one point there's like an odd stage direction about how he's at the gates of hell and he's supposed to sing something, but nothing comes out of the actor's voice. It's all like, canned music that gets played over yeah, top like of tonal. it. Yeah. And so I don't know. We never like, you know, he, he, he's at the very beginning of the play. He's like, I've written a 12 part symphony for you. Right. And she's like, can I hear it? And he's like, no, no, it's just too complicated. <laughs> <laughs> like you turn on you jerk. <laughs> I don't care about you or like you at all. Right. <laughs> the only time in the play when he's like, even empathetic to me at all is when she's dead and he's right. writing letters. Yeah. <laughs> so yep. I think we got two things we really have to cover. The climactic moment, what happens after Eurydice calls for Orpheus and he turns around as they walk out of hell and we got to talk about the stones. Yeah. Yep. We're talking uh, about Orpheus and Eurydice now, right? Yeah, let's get the let's let's get through there. We're we're what on theme. The heck. <laughs> Are we supposed to do with the dialogue that comes after the the point? So they're walking out of hell. Eurydice's following it. There's lots of very Sarah Rule stage directions, which are awesome, about how mm. the walk should take time. It's like in big capital letters. They walk. Right. It's like, okay, great. As a director, I love things like that. Creative, lots of room there. Eventually, she, you know, she's going through all this doubt. Who is this person? I've just gotten this relationship with my dad back. All this stuff. She calls out to him, Orpheus, Orpheus. And he turns around because she called out to him. So that means that she has to stay. She's stuck in hell. Yep. Um, so then, what in the world? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a bunch of... Uh... It, it's kind of like they're having a little mini argument almost. Or I think this is why I don't. I still don't like this moment. I like your explanation. I still don't like Orpheus in this moment <laughs> because he's he's blaming her for not being able to keep rhythm, and that if you can't keep rhythm, dangerous things happen, and and that this is one of those dangerous things that have now happened. And uh, and in the in the meantime, she is. 
she she is also saying she can't use she can't she doesn't have rhythm she can't figure it out um but then she kind of begins to start walking away there's there's a back and forth of this line over and over that she says if ifs and ands were pots and pans there'd be no need for tinkers and she's kind of like fading back into the underworld by this point they're growing further and further apart and uh yeah it's it's a weird series of lines <laughs> <laughs> answer me this jackson if okay. let's imagine a different version of this play so everything okay. happens exactly the same up to this moment she taps him on the shoulder he says orpheus he turns around startled and like mary zimmerman's imagining actors pull them away from each other and they disappear and the next sure. scene plays would mm-hmm. that not have been better yeah <laughs> I mean, nope. what? I don't know what all this is even supposed to mean. It's crazy, <laughs> nonsensical stuff that they say on top of each other. Like, at, they're supposed to say these two things at the same time. Orpheus says, you always clapped your hands on the third beat. You couldn't wait for the fourth. Remember, I tried to teach you. And at the same time, Eurydice saying, I could never spell the word rhythm. It's such a difficult word to spell. R, Y, no, there's an H in it. Even if all of that actually seem to have some real important context to the play because they've never talked about how Eurydice's off rhythm until this moment of the play. Briefly at the beginning, they talk about how she can't really sing, but this is the first moment we've heard that she has a hard time keeping rhythm. So even if th- that had been built into earlier in the play, how are you supposed to understand what they're saying? They're talking <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so I... I, I <laughs> I don't think it's important. <laughs> I don't think it's important to understand what they're saying. I think what is happening in this moment is they're getting ripped from each other. And and there's and and not only are they getting ripped from each other, but they're still kind of arguing about stuff. And Orpheus is still kind of bringing up stuff that annoyed him. And and they're getting further and further away and then she like turns away pretty much. She looks back to the other shore and sees that the stones are over there and she begins to comment on them. And we see in that, we see them getting ripped away, but there's nothing ripping them away. It's like this ethereal force that is just overcoming them. They, the, the stage directions call for them to right away be unable to look at each other. They are compelled to look away. And yet they are talking, they're crying out, they're still airing everything that they've been storing up. Or Orpheus is mostly airing things that he'd been storing up. And, and they're getting pulled further and further away. They're having less and less in common. They share one last look when a name is said. When, when Orpheus says her name, they, she manages to break it. They both break. They look at each other, and then they are compelled away again. This is, again, the physical acting. I think why it's not necessarily better that uh, like creatures came out and drew them away is because if you physicalize this well, it'll be wrenching that they just can't, that something has uh, hit them that they just can't overcome anymore and they're being pulled apart by something that's not visible that's something in them i i I agree with that i think that the action of watching them almost meet she touches his shoulder he turns around and then they their physicalization they turn away from each other and they're forced to walk away from each other back across the stage the action of it is very poignant, could have a lot to say. Uh, I don't know why she didn't just write some cool Sarah Rule stage directions that told the actors to do that. Right, right, right. 
<laughs> I, I mean, the, the sense of rhythm stuff, again, it, it's not brought up before in the play. So it's hard to have access to, like, get much meaning out of that criticism of Eurydice. Like, are we supposed to somehow gather that he's upset at her for that because that was somehow what interrupted their walking out of Hades? I don't know. Is it supposed to be, as you say, sort of just a uh, an airing of an old grief of Orpheus? <laughs> I don't know. And then they get into odd stuff about things that they remember. But again, they're talking on top of each other. Um, I think that... What the what what is interesting about the dialogue when you can dive into it and find it is the sense that Eurydice is already over this. As soon as she touches Orpheus' shoulder and says his name, she's not much concerned about what's going to happen to Orpheus or their relationship anymore. She moves on and and goes back into uh, looking. She's talking about the stones. She's she's talking about the hell that she sees, that it looks like home, that she's coming back to it, whereas Orpheus is still hanging on to the last threads of their relationship. When you dig into it and you can look at the text, I think you can find that sense of the characters, how their alignment functions together. Orpheus trying to hang on via maybe bringing up old arguments they have, but then definitely at the end talking about how he wants her to talk to her, how she they've been in love for centuries, reminiscing about when he played his music for her, but she's gone already. That is yeah. in the text. But, man, it would be hard to pick that out when they're talking on top of each other. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's it. Uh, I, I, yeah. And, and it'll become, you know, in this moment where we, we see this loss happen, right? Like, w- as soon as he turns around, we know it's over because we know the myth. We know that this is the the heartbreak part. So we, we, if if we have believed and be, have begun to empathize with these characters, we're going through grief with them right now. And then in the middle of that, they're like shout, not shouting, but they're, they're speaking over each other. They're, they, they can't, they can't listen to each other still. They they can't look at each other. And I think that maybe is part of the heartbreak, but I, 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 I think you're, I think I'm fighting uphill with that argument. (laughs) Well, you know, I think to, to come back around to one of the things you said about the play at the very beginning, this part especially, and there are other parts like it is just poetry. It's, yeah. it's not it's not even very dramatic because, again, there's just not much interaction. There's not much pursuing of goals. It's just poetry. And the poetry has an, a physical visual element to it, which you've described as being very, very powerful to see the physical visual part of it. And the rhythms of their speech have some poetry to it as well, right? You just talked about how at the beginning they're talking over each other, both trying to explain this thing that has just happened. Then they're starting to give each other room to talk, but they're talking about totally different things. And then at the end, they're talking over each other again. But at this point in time, one of them is talking to the other who's not even involved in the conversation again. There's rhythms and movement to that, but it's a lot. It is a lot. (laughs) It's a lot to pick up on all at once. And this is one of those moments where Sarah Rule, in telling this story, sort of creatively reimagined some of the parts of the story that are the most familiar. And I love creative reimaginings, but it seems like it might have been a little heavy on the creative. (laughs) Sure, sure. She, yeah. she, I think she assumes that we know what is supposed to happen in this moment because we know the myth. And right. so the actual storytelling of what happens 
maybe plays backseat to the poetry of the character's inner inner life. Right. Yeah, and what we're experiencing the characters going through in this moment rather than the the dramaticness of the action itself. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, of course, happens at several of the key moments from the original myth throughout the play. When Orpheus arrives at the gate of hell, there's visual auditory poetry instead of the storytelling of actually how he gets into hell. Right. right. How he actually gets yeah. down to the gates of hell and then into hell is almost skipped over yeah. in favor of some <laughs> po- sort of poetic artful imagining of what has gone on. I think because she leans into the audience prior understanding of what the story is supposed to be. I think that it's possible. See if you agree with me, Jackson, that even though the play is really a different story of Orpheus and Eurydice, the play might be impossible to follow or to really connect with without some basic knowledge of the myth. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Because it only plays as a counter to the original myth, I think. Yeah, yeah, it it is stitched into it and, like, added on. It is is, uh, an add-on to the myth in such a way that if it just kind of was out there by itself, there'd be very little to hang on to. It depends on the the myth and the, the reformatting of it. Right, and only, like we just talked about with this climactic moment, I think the only reason why you can pull anything from this moment where Orpheus and Eurydice are moving away from each other and speaking on top is because we know how the original myth goes. Right. Where it's heartbreaking and she's turned into a pillar of salt or she disappears entirely. And Sarah Rule basically says, because you know that's what's supposed to happen, instead of that, here's a poetic reinterpretation interpretation of the moment and that allows us to get something out of the moment right i i because absolutely we see agree it with that. in contrast to what we expect to see mm-hmm. yeah and 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 with the underlying assumption that what we expect to see is happening on some level so so yeah i i completely agree with that it adds it adds the gravitas to the moment these these random words it feels like that are being spoken over each other um, the the gravity of it is added by the fact that they're we know the myth and they're being ripped apart. Absolutely. So the stones. <laughs> yeah, hard to gear make shift. a hard left turn into <laughs> characters a... that don't appear in the original myth at all. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the last five minutes, we just gotta talk about them. They're like they <laughs> they add some of the comedy to the show in some ways. There's these these three characters play these stones, and the stones of Hades or of the of the underworld are um, people are individuals who like quiet, who like things to be the way they're supposed to be who uh like or at least purport to (laughs) purport to right right (laughs) who encourage characters to not rock the boat to just leave them alone they do a lot of exposition in this play um and and what you choose to do with the stones um can can uh be really fun can be you know just these are expositors in the story or witnesses to the story or maybe chorus right. to the and, story and in fact they're called the chorus of stones i mean they, yeah. there's no doubt that they serve the function of a chorus it's interesting i ran across and i cannot for the life of me remember where i basically ran across a list of playwriting exercises suggested by different famous playwrights they all suggested an exercise to try um, for playwriting education and training purposes. And Sarah Rule's exercise was, whatever play you're working on, write a chorus into it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's about right. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. all right, yeah, well, that's the Stones. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's also an interesting uh, we we've been talking about or this 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 story underneath the lens of the the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, and I think there's some argument to be made that they are kind of the the stones are at times friends to Eurydice. Um, it's it's like we we've talked about the chorus them being the chorus, and they're kind of that way. It's like you know the the leader of the town is to uh, Oedipus. You know, it's these it's these people who are giving advice to Eurydice, and so, sometimes it's hard advice, but other times they're like super on her side, and like it's like all of a sudden they're very excited about these things that are happening. They like cheer her on to try to follow Orpheus and and uh, and 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 make it across into into life again. So there's this also element of maybe these are the witnesses of her life, uh, and and thus are maybe maybe more than just kind of rocks in the underworld <laughs> yeah in some ways they're just comic relief in some ways they're kind of a stable imagery element one thing that's interesting about them is that there seems to be a very intentionally no attention paid to their location it just does not yeah. matter where the stones are <laughs> yep <laughs> they travel all around they're in every scene of the underworld virtually and all the scenes are in different places so they yeah. sort of i think you're right they serve sort of a companion role i don't know that i'd call her friends and i'm not even sure i'd agree that they really cheer her on or encourage her towards anything they are to me the enforcers of of the rules of the underworld. They are constantly telling uh, the father to stop talking to Eurydice, to don't teach her that, uh, don't do this, don't do that. You should be, you should have your memory wiped. You should go jump in the river of forgetfulness. You should not uh, talk about love or fathers or husbands because that's not language that dead people understand. Eventually, they do encourage her to walk on towards Orpheus, but only because the rules say she can't go back to her father anymore. That's it's really true. as a as a dichotomy. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a dual option. It's like, right. your dad's gone now. The only way is forward. You can't go back into the land of the dead unless you die. Yeah, that's a good point. I, <laughs> <laughs> the one time they're kind of encouraging is just because they don't want her to break more rules. And Sarah Rule's <laughs> advice at the beginning is, or at least suggestion, is that you potentially could, and she does not demand this, which is nice, you could play these three characters, Big Stone, Little Stone, and Loud Stone are the three stones. You could play them as if they're nasty children at a birthday party. They have sort of a cynical, cruel outlook towards the characters, which make them kind of an interesting chorus. Mm -hmm. And again, it's one of those things that kind of works in opposition to what you expect because a Greek chorus is basically what you described. These yeah. sort of friendly crowd that's on the side of the protagonist that weeps when they weep and laughs when they laugh and sometimes pushes back and offers them sage advice. And this chorus of stones is not like that at all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, they're very cantankerous and complainy. Um, I, I like what you said, too, about them not being contained to any one area of the stage. I think that is, uh, uh, a, again, a welcoming by Sarah Rule to make movement happen in this play. <laughs> I mean, they're stones, so not too much movement. But and also a, an encouragement from her not to pay attention to set. Uh, that's mm. not what I mean. Sorry. That's uh, for all the set designers out there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I mean, not pay attention to set changes or location. Yeah. And that's mentioned by her a couple of times that as we go location to location, there are no set changes. Yeah. When the room of string is on stage, it's on stage. 
and whatever rooms and places happen around it in different locations just happen around it. Yep. Everything is very ethereal in terms of location and when you're where and, and how long it takes you to get places and things like that. And yeah. then very intentional, again, sort of leaning into poetry and imagery as opposed to the storytelling of now we're here. We were right. there and now we're here. Yep. Very lyrical, very fluid in its in its uh, location design, um, even down to like to the the father writing a letter and dropping it as if through a mail slot. And then the next scene is on, on the surface of the world. (laughs) And that letter is still would still be sitting there. Most likely (laughs) in many versions of the play, the letter will just be sitting there for the, uh, for the Hades character to find on the road basically and pick up. So, so yeah, it's, it is, it is very, very fluid in its design elements. But there are some very specific things that you have to have, right? You have to have some sort of representation of the river sticks, or she calls it the river of forgetfulness. You mm-hmm. have to have the reigning elevator for yep. reasons I do not understand. You have to have a glow-in-the-dark globe for reasons that I do not understand. Yep, that's specifically called for. Yep. You have to have pipes for decorative purposes i mean (laughs) i can see why you would have pipes there's a lot of themes of water and it's underground so Mm -hmm. the sense that there's water running all around is an awesome stage design but why is that necessary i just i'm not sure yeah something on which to hang the house of string that's right. I mean, you do need a, a mechanism to hang the house of string. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Well, I think that's about all the time that we have for this uh, episode uh, of, of No Script. This is a, <laughs> I, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did. This is a, a fun, interesting play that leaves a lot of room for imagination and a lot of room for talking about different stuff. It leaves a lot of doors open for you to make a lot of choices as a design team, as an actor, as a director. So so I'm just, I'm just very, very glad that we eventually have made our way to this play. Yeah, th- there's lots of white space in the play to fill in. And... For all the things that confuse me about it, what I really believe is that the core of the play is not only beautiful, but just absolutely remarkable and touching. This core story of Eurydice rediscovering the relationship with her father and and what that leads to in their journey through the underworld, the imagery, especially of the stuff that surrounds that, I think is just gorgeous and is some of Rule's best writing. Uh, Rule doesn't often maybe get credit for her dialogue writing, but it's really strong in places in this play, especially when she leans into the relationships over the images. And a great example of that, one of the best pieces of dialogue, maybe in all of her writing, I think, is when Orpheus proposes to her and he wraps the piece of string around mm-hmm. her finger yeah. and she says... Because and he's not proposing. He's uh, he's saying I'm going to give you a piece of string so that you remember that I love you. And he wraps the string around the ring, the the finger that you'd put a ring on. And she says, "That's a very particular finger." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he says, "Yes." And she says, "Did you intentionally put it on that finger?" <laughs> and it goes on, sort of like that, talking around what is going on for a few lines. I love moments like that. She's so great at capturing these brilliant creative takes on relational conversation. And that's where, for me, this play is the strongest, Mm. leaning into the relationships. Yeah. 
So, so if I mean, especially those of you who I know who have been in it, who have played out these relationships, I would love to continue having this conversation with you. And anyone who has uh, uh, been in this play, seen this play, read this play, uh, log on and find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and uh, continue the conversation with us. Our username is NoScript at NoScript Podcast on all those social media sites. We also have our email, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on there, and we'd love to continue having the conversation with you about these characters and this play. Yeah, absolutely we would, especially because we know lots of you have done it and probably have very strong opinions about it yes. that are not the same as, especially mine, <laughs> but yours as well. I'm sure some of mine as well. We're going to get, we're go, what is it that they say in that VeggieTales episode? We're going to get letters about, about this. this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, look, if you like this episode, even if you didn't and you're pulling your hair out at how stupid, uh, especially I was <laughs> in my understanding of the play, that's great. That's great. Uh, please share the episode. Share other episodes that you liked better and you think we got closer to with something that uh, is reality. Uh, share them <laughs> on your social media. Tell your friends about it. That's the best thing you can do to support us besides giving us yo money on <laughs> patreon.com slash podcast. Please do one of those things. You can find our podcast on Podbean where it's hosted on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. There's a link to a new episode posted on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter every Monday, except not for the next several Mondays. Because right. again, looping back, we're going to be on a break for the next couple of weeks, just a short summer break. We will be releasing the first episode of season three, the first week of July. Yeah, I think that's July 1, if I'm not mistaken. So if that's uh, a Monday, it's July 1. <laughs> yeah, so hang in there, re-listen to some of our episodes or something like that, or just, you know what, the best idea is to read a couple plays, because you never know when we're going to get to talk about them next. So <laughs> the best idea is to go to your job and earn some money so that you can put your debit card information onto our patreon.com and have funds to say no. <laughs> the best idea is to read some plays. Read yeah, some that's, plays. Uh, read some plays. Never, uh, if you are interested in what we are potentially doing, we don't want to release the official lineup of plays for any given season because we oftentimes shift things around and we want to leave room for if a, a new play comes out or things like that. But we would potentially be willing to share with those of you who are interested uh, via email some of what we're thinking about doing for season three. So if you wanted to read ahead, you could contact us via email. Like Jackson said, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. So until July, when we get to talk to you about more scripts and our season three, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for listening to No Script, the podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.